that it's not just what we do. I got that on right, close enough. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. Okay? The ultimate motive for why we do what we do is because of who we are. Or you could say whose we are. Both are true. So you with me? And that's what's going to stand out. This morning we're just going to look at the first nine verses of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God. The church of God which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm going to mention seven different things here that characterize the people of this church of God at Corinth. They are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by Him or in Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now you notice I count at least nine different references in these verses to the name of Jesus Christ. So the emphasis is on the name of Jesus Christ, but also the emphasis is on these saints, as he calls them, right? Believers who lived in Corinth. And by the way, if you were a first century person, which no one here is, but if you lived in the first century, Corinth, just the name of the city, they, you know, they said nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Well, even more so would they say that about Corinth. I mean, you might pick a city, I don't know, Las Vegas, I don't know, one of the cities where there are New Orleans, you know, corruption that we relate to in our day. And Corinth was even worse. We're, we're headed toward Corinthian lifestyle in this country. But, but Corinth in the first century was worse. It was known for that. And yet, God had people there who were set apart for God. 
And that's the title of this first message. As we think about our identity, our new identity as believers, we have been set apart for God. Now that's fascinating because as I look out on this audience, I see people from different cultures, different ethnic backgrounds, right? Different levels of education, different occupations, cultural diversity. And yet, I see a, a group of people that are one body in Christ. You all have the same, we all have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Lord, Jesus Christ. We were saved through the same gospel, the gospel of His Son. We were brought into this family of God through the grace of God. We all came the same way. And one of the things the Apostle Paul is going to focus on in 1 Corinthians is that very important distinction. We have a lot more in common. Or let's put it this way. Who we are what we have in common is a lot more important than what we are different from each other. So, our ethnic background, our, our, our particular group of people we came from, becomes secondary to the fact that, well, I'm a child of God. I'm part of the family of God. I am part of the church of God. He'll say in 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's the church of the living God. And you are His lighthouse in this place. There are others too, right? There are other lighthouses, but this is the church of God in a place, in Corinth, he says. So Paul is trying to get them to understand who they are. Now that's going to set up the second half of chapter 1, which we'll look at, Lord willing, tonight, and, and of course, he begins in verse 10, it's the issue of there were divisions, contentions among them, working against that unity of who they were. And we'll see that tonight, but part of the issue of the contentions, the divisions, and the antagonism and the reason they weren't getting along was because they were looking at men instead of at the Lord. And whenever you put men in the place that the only the Lord Jesus, you're going to have contentions. If for no other reason, some are going to say, how come my name is not in that list? You know, that self becomes agitated. And when we see others exalting themselves, then we want to exalt ourselves. It's part of that old nature that we still have, see? You say, well, that happened in first century Corinth. That would never happen here. Oh, yes, it happens. And self is very subtle about how we do this. But think about some of the things that you and I say sometimes. And how we like to drop names to give credence to a particular belief that we have or a particular idea that we have. As if we needed those men's names. 
I mean, we have to admit, even in our heritage, in the assemblies, you know, there came a time in the late 1800s where they began to say, well, we're not going to use our names, we're just going to use our initials when we write something, right? Well, that even became a sectarian division. Because then, oh no, we are the only ones that use initials. Everybody else, they put their name. But then you had to know, you had to be part of the secret society to know who the initials meant. Oh, I know who that means. I'm really in, see. It doesn't work, does it? As long as we keep Jesus Christ central and recognize He alone is sufficient and the Holy Spirit certainly affirmed that this morning at the Lord's Supper, didn't he? <laughs> he certainly affirmed the sufficiency of Christ. And we'll look at that some tonight. But before we, he gets to that, beginning in verse 10, he has these first nine verses. And to me, to me, verse 9 itself, which is a great memory verse, not only because it tells us about the character of God, that the God who called you is faithful to get you to the end. And don't think that's automatic either because I was up in, in another state, in another part of the country, and a man was, he was all preoccupied, well, you know, brother, you know, what if at, at, right before you died you denied Jesus Christ or you got into some kind of a sin? I said, well, then I would die still God's child because I am his child now, see? He, oh, no, he said, no, he said, no, that's heresy, you can't have that. But you know what his real problem was? And I wished I had seen it when we were sitting there because he caught me by surprise. He's one that has supported the ministry. In years past, and of course that ended. But that's okay. <laughs> the Lord knows who his own are. What he, I think, was missing was the new birth. See, his problem, his problem was with not with me, his problem was with God. And his problem was he didn't understand the gospel. Because if you're born again, you can't be unborn. As Brother Alton likes to say, you can't unscramble an egg. I mean, it just it, it only works that direction, right? And so it's the very fundamental fact of what God has done in us, to us, that gives us the confidence that He will complete it on the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6, right? He who has begun a good work in you. You didn't begin it. I didn't begin it. He began it. God is the initiator. We love Him because He first loved us, right? Let's make sure we get the cart and the horse in the right order. The horse goes in front of the cart. And the Lord goes first. And so he says, He called you into, and to me, this is verse 9 I'm still looking at, to me this is a staggering statement. I mean, to me this is mind-boggling when you think of what Paul is saying here. And if it wasn't in the Bible, I would never dare to say this. The fellowship of His Son? 
Now we know what the word fellowship means. You've probably studied it already in Acts chapter 2, koinonia, right? A sharing together in common, right? And so there's involved, you know, like Brother Ron and I have talked in the years past about one of the definitions of holiness is agreeing with God. And I've shared that in other places too with His permission. But it's true to agree with God, to agree with His Word. That's part of being what holiness being set apart for God means. But let's just go back to Acts chapter 2 for a second, if you will. You've probably looked at it already, so I'm just going to run through it very briefly. But look at what happens, what, what Luke records about this early church that's heard the message of the gospel from Peter. And beginning in verse 41, what characterizes these people? What characterizes them, right? We're talking about identity, who we are in Christ Jesus. These people are part of the church of God. That These descriptions here are describing people that are part of the church of God, like you and me. They're saints called out by the same gospel, like you and me. And what characterizes them? Well, the first thing is they gladly received His Word. They gladly received the Scriptures. They gladly received the Word of God. Do you? Do I? Are we happy to come to the Word of God on a regular basis and have an open heart? That's what glad reception means, right? Have a heart to say, and say, I can't wait to get into the Scriptures tomorrow morning. I gladly receive them because they make me glad. That's part of being in the fellowship of His Son. But not only that, they were baptized. And not just some of them were baptized. Not just the elite ones were baptized. All of them were baptized. And they were all baptized the same way. And we know from Acts chapter 8, it was by immersion. Now later on in the history of the church, infant baptism came in. It wasn't in the Bible. And this idea of sprinkling water came in. But that's not what we see here. They were immersed. Now the church has got off on some of these other different things. But really, the baptism... And, and Paul will say in, in Ephesians 4, there's only one baptism. Right? There's only one. Not necessarily just one mode. Don't get hung up on the mode of baptism. But there's only one baptism. And when we celebrate baptism, we are celebrating the fact that this person is making a public declaration. They're saying, yes, I was identified in Jesus Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and I'm going to show it to you by going through this activity in front of the, the whole public. Anybody who wants to see it. Right? That's another characteristic. He goes on. And they continued, one of our children, and by the way, keep encouraging them, I wonder, I don't know, maybe we can work this out on Friday night, Friday night somehow, but, but that quoting scripture like that, we want to see them doing that when they get to be teens and 20 year olds too, right? That's a great thing. That's a great thing. Hiding their word in their hearts. But they continued steadfastly in four things. Verse 42. You've probably looked at this one already. The apostles' doctrine. That's what we're doing now. The teaching of the word. And, and really I think the article the ought to be there. It's there in the original. The fellowship. They continued in the apostles' doctrine and in the fellowship. That fellowship is the fellowship Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 1.9. It's the fellowship of his son, but it's also a fellowship with the apostles who wrote the New Testament for his son under the guidance of his son by his Holy Spirit, right? And in the breaking of bread, 
and in the prayers. They continued intermittently. Is that what it says? No, they continued steadfastly, focused, determined. They were doing this and they knew why they were doing it and they knew who they were and they knew what they were doing it for. They knew what it meant. Not only that, then fear came upon every soul. There was a fear, a reverential fear of God, something which in our culture is virtually gone. Brother shared with us the other day at a elder's luncheon in Houston. He said, I never thought I'd see the day in my lifetime when one of the political parties in our country would put God out of its platform. But we're, that, we're in that day. And in place of it, they would put other things that are contrary to the Bible in their platform. Publicly, boldly, to do this in front of the face of God. Like just in your face, Lord. Now we know historically other cultures and civilization that have done that, don't we? And we know what happened to them. That gives you a glimmer of what's coming. Pray for our young people. They call them millennials. You know, they sociologically they like to put a title on, you know, the boomer generation, that's that's me. And then there was generation X after that. And there were certain characteristics of those generations that made them distinct. I think it's wise to be aware of that. And there are certain characteristics of millennials that make them distinct too. They're the first generation, the millennials are, the first generation in all of the history of mankind that grew up with computer as being standard fare. You know, I grew up using Encyclopedia Britannica and even Americana before that. That's how ancient I am. But they, they probably never have ever held an encyclopedia because they can, go, they can Google it, as they say. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to relate to them and, and, and we need to relate to our culture, but, but there are some uniquenesses about that. There are some good things and there are some dangers. There are some dangers that are unique to it too, as we're finding out. But it's, we can't change it. You can't reverse technology. Once the computer came in, you can't go back. I mean, when the car was invented, it's real hard to go back to the horse and buggy. Right? Technology is not reversible like that. You know, once you've flown on a jet airplane, uh, the idea of, of getting a slow boat to China kind of a thing, it just, that isn't, that isn't going to do it. And so we need to be aware of that. And there are certain characteristics of millennials. And one of the things, and I'm glad they're learning apologetics this weekend, because that's one of the things about millennials. When they are convinced of something, they are wholeheartedly into it. Unlike Generation X and the boomer generation before it. That will be a plus for them if they get the gospel early enough in their life. And one of the things is they ask a lot of questions. You would expect the computer generation to do that. They're exposed to more media and more information. It's, it's called the information age, right? 
more information than any other generation before them, just because the technology makes it available to them. And let's not be afraid of their questions. Let's make sure we give them the right answers from the Word of God, right? But let's not be afraid of their questions. Because if they get saved early, they alone will be in a special way be able to minister to their fellow people of the millennial generation. Well, that's one of the things that characterize these here. A fear of God. And I'm sorry, brethren. I think you'd have to agree with me. Even amongst professing Christians, that is not there like it used to be. I mean, we, we get influenced by our culture. But we have a new identity now. I mean, before I was saved, I was, I mean, stock car racing was everything. And when I was a young person, I went to the races and I learned and met the drivers and I watched what they did at the track. I couldn't afford tickets, so I watched from the pit gate. But from the pit gate, I could see, you could stand there for free. And there was a policeman there, so I mean, we could only get so close. But I could see the whole track. I could see what they were doing coming out of turn four, going into turn one. And I even learned, I just, I didn't realize it. But I even walked like they walked. They were, they were my heroes. And I just, I learned it, man, I, and, and I was, and of course, the Lord used some of them to bring me to himself and salvation too. So praise the Lord for that. And one of the things I had to learn, hey, that's not who you are anymore. You're not, that's not your identity now. You're a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're a new creation in Christ. There are new things that characterize you now. You've got to cartargero. You've got to put away those childish things, he says. And put on Christ. And that's an ongoing process for every one of us. Because every one of you has a past before you were saved, right? And there are influences there. You may not even be aware of them yet. But if we walk in the Spirit and spend time in the Word of God, He will illuminate ourselves, our hearts to them, and we'll know, to, oh, I need to put that away. Like Paul says, when I became a man, I put away those childish things. Put away those Led Zeppelin records. Right? When I became a man. That is, when I became mature in Christ. And I had them, I had all of them. Fear of God. And of course, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Miracles. Miracles. You say, whoa, I'd love to see miracles in our midst. Well, brother and sister, every person that's born again is a miracle. Aren't they? When you go from death to life, that's not a miracle. From darkness to light. Every child of God that gets away from God for a while and gets restored, that's a miracle too, isn't it? Do you rejoice in that? I do. Praise God, that's a victory for Him. Some say, well, no, no, well, no, we can't, we can't receive Him back. No, no, because, you know, there's no grace for them. There is grace for them, isn't there? We want them. Now, there's a process. The Bible tells us. But we want them to be restored. We pray for that. And then verse 44, all who believed were together, had all things in common. Now he's going to explain koinonia, the fellowship. That's what he's describing here in these verses. He'll come back to it again at the end of chapter 4. It's so important what characterized them. 
And they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now, they were not a commune. They were a community. There's a difference. In a commune, some man or a group of men or a couple or someone like that becomes the head of it and everything gets given to them. But the church, it's Jesus Christ who's the head of it. Amen? It's Jesus Christ who's the head of it. And so continuing daily with one accord, unity. Breaking bread from house to house with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Those are all characteristics that characterize people who are part of the fellowship of His Son. Can I go a few more minutes? I recognize the time here. I'm just going to go a few more minutes. You all are sitting and listening so attentively, so I appreciate that. We had a wonderful time this morning, so I'm not, I'm not taking anything away from it. This has been a special morning for me. But let's just, let me just run through the seven things here in, in 1 Corinthians 1. All right? I, won't, I won't spend time on them. Maybe I'll allude a little bit more to them tonight. But follow with me. Verse 2. Paul identifies himself. He's, he's a God's apostle. By the will of God, he was set apart for that work. He's a person... And he, he says, an apostle, I have authority. Three times, I think, maybe four in this epistle, he's going to say, imitate me, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? He's going to say at least three times in this epistle, I think maybe four, this, what I'm telling you here in 1 Corinthians, I, I'm not giving you a cultural thing here. This is what we say in all the churches. Okay? So that throws out the cultural hermeneutic of of 1 Corinthians 11 that I hear so much about. He said this to all the churches, all right? So the teachings here are for all of the churches. And he says to, to those in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. First thing, sanctified means set apart, not just set apart by itself, but set apart for something. Like the holy articles in the temple. The same word is used, I mean, spoons and forks and, and uh, wick trimmers and all that. They were holy because they were set apart for a purpose, for God's purpose, to be used in His temple. And you and I have been set apart for God. Look at what he says over in chapter 6 in verse 9. What, he, what characterizes, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, he's talking about people that, that have this, these characteristics as their lifestyle. They're living in, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, people living in fornication, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, both the aggressive side of homosexuality as well as the passive side of it, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. They, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And then look what he says. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been set apart for God. Don't ever forget that. God brought you to Himself through the gospel of His Son. You are not what you were before. You will never be that again, ever. 
You are a new creation in Christ. You've been taken out of Adam and put into Christ, Romans 5.12 and following, and you're a new creation in Him and all things are new for you now. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior here this morning, that hasn't happened to you yet, but it can. You can submit to the gospel like the rest of us have and believe that I'm a lost sinner before a holy God and there's only one provision God's made for me for my salvation, but God has made it. We're going to say this again tomorrow night too. Be praying. God has made it. Christ's sacrifice on the cross propitiates the wrath of God. He's satisfied with it. He proved that by raising Him from the dead. And we who are in Christ have been saved from the wrath of God. There is no condemnation now anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus this morning? It's up to you. God's working in your heart. Think about what He's saying to you through His Word. He says they were called to be saints. Another thing that characterized them. So they were sanctified. They were, they were, they're of God. It's the church of God. That's the first one I would put. The second is sanctified in Christ Jesus. The third, called saints. That is, they had a calling. They had a particular mission. And each one of you does. And I do. And they're different. But we have a mission God assigned to us the moment He saved us. He didn't say, well, I'll wait and see how faithful you are and then I'll give you your spiritual gift. No, He planned it before the foundation of the world even, before you and I were conceived. We want to learn what it is and submit to it and participate in it. Because koinonia, fellowship, means participation, right? Fourthly, there are others involved too. He says, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. One Lord, all in every place. See, There are other people that are part of this body, this fellowship. We want to know that. We want to know who they are. We want to encourage and edify and build them up. We want to participate with them in the work He's given us to do, right? A lot more could be said on that. And then fifthly, the grace given to you. He says, grace has been given to you. You see that in verse 4? For the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. You have a spiritual gift. That's part of that grace. And he had talks about a couple of the gifts. You were enriched in everything by Him in utterance, the speaking gifts, and in all knowledge, the knowledge gifts, even as the testimony of Messiah, Jesus Christ, was confirmed in you so that you don't fall behind in any gift. See? The church of God at Corinth, with all its failings, and they had a lot of them, as, we, as you see in this letter, they didn't fall behind in any of the gifts. If they were falling behind, why were they falling behind? They were forgetting who they were. Just like we can do. And then sixthly, they were waiting with anticipation for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Mr. Vine says that really that word coming 
our English word doesn't get the strength of, of the Greek word parousia, and it should have been, he said, it should have been transliterated, like baptize is a transliteration of the word. And I agree with him. The more I think about it, the parousia of the Lord Jesus, the coming, it's not just, I mean, there was a coming when he came in the first time, right, in the incarnation, but the parousia is talking about when he comes in exalted glory, which is going to be different. When he came the first time, he came in humiliation. He's not coming like that again. Paul says, we knew him like that. We don't know him that way any longer. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, John fell before him like a dead man in Revelation 1. He's the exalted Lord now. He maybe laid his head on his shoulder when he was there at the Lord's Supper, but he's not doing that now. And we're not going to go up to him. I've heard some say, you know, well, I'm going to go up and stick up my hand and say, thanks for saving me, you know. <laughs> well... I'm going to be on my face, I hope, kissing his feet. If he lets me get that close to him. He's so marvelous and wonderful. But what does it mean to be waiting for his appearing, waiting for his coming? You know, some of us, and, and we have, who have promoted the doctrine of the imminent return of the Lord, maybe more than any other group for a long time, and we pride ourselves in that to a certain extent, but, but look at our lifestyle. Do we live like we believe He's coming anytime? I don't think so. And I'm speaking of myself too. We who want to push the imminent return of the Lord least really believe it, it seems like, in practice, because we live like we're going to be here for 50 more years or 100 more years, and we're... Something to ponder, isn't it? If you believe the Lord's coming back anytime, like tonight, tomorrow, the next day, it helps us stay sharp spiritually for Him. Keep a short account. Recognize we're going to be accountable when we see Him. He'll get into that in chapter 3. And then lastly, God is faithful, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day. And the day of our Lord Jesus Christ is the day of the rapture for the church. If you compare all the uses of them, and there are like six or seven of them in the New Testament, that's consistently what we see. The day of the Lord, Yom Yahweh, is in the Old Testament something different. Yom Yahweh will follow after the day of Jesus Christ with the beginning of the tribulation in darkness and then moving on to the millennial kingdom in light. Both the tribulation and the millennial kingdom are part of Yom Yahweh according to the Old Testament. And God will be doing a similar but slightly different work in the world then. But the day of Jesus Christ is coming for you and me. John 14. I will, in like manner, as, as you saw me go, that's how I'm going to come. I went up into the clouds. I'm going to come down to the clouds and call you to meet me in the air. And if we believe that, if we wait for it, that's the idea of looking with anticipation. That will change us too. Change your whole outlook on this life, beloved. Some of the brethren mentioned it earlier in the Lord's Supper. This world is falling apart all around us. Unbelievable, unspeakable things are happening that you may not even know about. And a lot of them I don't know about. In places we would have never dreamed of. And they're nothing like, the Bible says, the horrors that are coming. 
But we who trust the Lord know that he is faithful. That he's called us into the fellowship of his son. He's set us apart for him. And he says, now go and live like it. Let me close with this. I apologize for going on. In Mr. McShane, uh, there I go mentioning a name. Shouldn't, I shouldn't even mention a name. Brother's book on commentary on First and Second Samuel, which is very profitable. Something has really struck me. He's contrasting David and Absalom. Now, you know who Absalom is, right? The, the son of David, probably his favorite son. Probably the son David wanted to make king. It didn't seem like Solomon was in, in, the, in the It was Absalom. He was handsome, you know, movie star handsome, long hair, and, and, and he was, well, when we say a politician, I mean, he was a gladhander. He, he, he knew how to win the people to himself. And he rebels against David. And, of course, we know his end and we know David's end. Mr. McShane goes back and he says, in the end, let's look at their legacy. What was David's legacy? Well, his legacy was a kingdom. In fact, Israel, at the furthest extent of its borders it's ever had in their entire history, Solomon inherited that. It was put in his lap. Solomon did not earn it. Solomon, I don't think, fought one battle. David fought all the battles. David did that. And he passed that on. When he died, he passed on one of the greatest kingdoms this planet has ever seen. And one of the wealthiest kingdoms. When Solomon, the Bible tells us he was the wealthiest of all kings of all time. Well, where did that wealth come from? You see what David left behind when he died? He left behind all the material for the temple. He had picked the place for the temple. He had done the design for the temple. The Lord didn't allow him to build it, even though he wanted to. It was in his heart to do it. That's what David left behind. You know what Absalom left behind? Mr. McShane says, a cold pile of stones. That's all he left behind. A cold pile of stones over his grave. He never won one battle, never fought one battle. Really, except the rebellion battle. He didn't conquer anything for God. He didn't do anything for God. He didn't pass anything on to his offspring and the next generation. There was nothing left. A total wreck. And yet he had such promise. So I ask you and I ask me, what's your legacy? When you look back over your lifespan, and, and there are a lot more years behind me than there are ahead of me. Some of us can say that. What are you leaving behind? How many lives have you invested in? How many people have you helped in that change transformation work, right? That's what counts for all eternity. It's not going to matter what car you drove when you die. It's not going to matter where your house was, what special community it was in when you died. That's not going to matter, is it? No one's going to remember that. It's not going to matter how big your library was because you probably have only read 1% of it anyway. We don't have time. No, what's going to matter is souls, people that you've impacted for Christ. 
And some of us need to realign, realign our priorities. I appreciate, Brother Glenn, I was praying for revival on the way down here, coming in. And, and we need revival, not just here at Boulevard, but in God's, amongst God's people, don't we, in a time like this? We need to be revived again. You say, well, what, what's wrong with us here? Nothing. I don't know of anything. But don't we always need revival? Is it ever wrong to pray for revival? I'm not going to throw in the towel and give up on this generation. You maybe have. Maybe you said, they're too far gone. Some people have. Uh, we're, I'm still breathing. There's work to do. We've been brought into the fellowship of His Son. We've been enriched with every gift in Him. We have what we need to do it in Him. May God help us. Thank you all. You're, you're a blessing to the Lord. Father, we, we thank you, O Lord, for your word and for the instruction it gives us. And, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think about these things. To remember what you brought us into and the privilege and awe and wonder of being the fellowship, part of the fellowship of your son. It's mind-boggling. Help us to live in a way that is in keeping with such a privilege that you may be glorified through us. They may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. So we thank you, O Lord. Pray your blessing as we depart in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen.